we continue our study in the book of Acts chapter 2 this morning. We're picking, off the, the, picking up where we left off last week as Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And today we pick up the second half of, of that story in Acts chapter 2. And let me start reading in verse 22, page 1078. Peter said, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized in about 3,000 were added to their number that day. When I'm uh, out in the community, not here at church, but out there in the world where people don't know I'm a pastor, and I, I meet people and we get talking and start interacting, one of the things I like to do, just for my own amusement, <laughs> is, is I like to not tell people I'm a pastor for as long as possible. It's just a little game I play. 
And, uh, you know, the conversation goes on and on, and, and then we'll finally come that point where the cat gets let out of the bag. And, you know, well, what do you do for a living? Or so what, what's your story? And I'm like, well, I'm a Baptist pastor. And, and then I, I love that moment because I see them. It's as if they've been slapped in the face by an invisible hand. You know, like, it just, they're, they're often like, you know, visibly move or something. And, and, and then, then I see their eyes kind of get weird. And, and it's as if I can see them rewinding the entire conversation. <laughs> How many times did I swear? <laughs> what did I just say? It doesn't always happen, but when it does, it, it's one of life's little joys for me. Um, I don't know, have you ever been in that situation where you f- didn't know that somebody was there or that somebody was somebody, you, you know, like riding up in the elevator at, at work and you're griping about work and the CEO is like right there? You know, oh, that was the, C- that was the president? I didn't know. Oh, that was the principal? That was your boyfriend? I, I can't, what did I say? You know, when you're rewinding the conversation. It's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling when you've been loose with your tongue or just doing whatever and then didn't realize there was someone there that you might have behaved differently if you understood who they were or what they were. Well, what if the person that we misinterpreted or misunderstood or failed to weigh properly, what if that person was someone far more important than a a preacher or a boss or even a president or a leader or a politician, someone in authority? What if that person that we failed to read rightly was God himself? And what if what we rewind then is not just a conversation, but what if we have to rewind our whole lives and we say, wait a minute, what if, what if God is real and God is like this and I've been living this way as if that wasn't true. What if everything I've been thinking and living and doing is off? <laughs> That's a terrible feeling. Well, here in the book of Acts in chapter 2 is one of those moments where Peter lets the cat out of the bag as he's speaking to these people, and he lets them know who God is, Except it's, it's a twist that, that they weren't expecting. He tells them, you know, you, you didn't realize who God was. I'm going to tell you who God was. And, and it's a twist that, that throws these people off, these, these Jewish people who would have assumed they knew who God was. They were the people of God. And yet here they're told the name of the Lord, and it totally surprises them as they find that the name of the Lord is Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 2. This is mid-sermon, so I started reading mid-sermon. Uh, I'm preaching a sermon about a sermon. Uh, ver- from verses uh, 14 down to 36, we have this sermon, and Peter's preaching it to the crowds. He's in Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost. It's about 50 days, uh, seven weeks after Jesus was raised from the dead. So we're still right in that time period of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's all very fresh. And, and something has happened on the day of Pentecost. What just happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out. And everyone who's a Christian is filled with the Spirit and they're speaking in other languages. And the people who aren't followers of Jesus are confused because they hear these Christians speaking in their own languages and they're thinking, what in the world is going on? We're totally confused. We don't understand this. So Peter takes the opportunity. He stands up and he says, well, let me tell you what all of this means. And he begins to preach this sermon, the first Christian sermon, the first gospel message in in the history of the church. 
And he stands up and he begins to explain that, you know, this, what you're hearing, this speaking other languages, is the Holy Spirit, which was promised. And, and then at the end of, of explaining that it's the Holy Spirit, if you look down at verse 21, this is where we left off last Sunday. He then, he, this is where he turns the corner to tell them who God really is. He says in verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what is the name of the Lord? And that's where he begins to explain that the Lord is actually Jesus, whom you crucified. You didn't realize that the Lord is Jesus. So then the rest of the sermon from verse 22 on is is him showing that Jesus is the Lord. In fact, look down at verse 36, if you don't mind. Let's jump ahead. So this is the very last line of the sermon. This is Peter's thunderous conclusion. This is his big moment where he draws it all together. And he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the the big conclusion. That, That one verse summarizes the main point of everything that Peter has said. That's where he wants to land us, to understand that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So, so what does that mean, that, that Jesus is Lord? Who, if, if you're a Jewish person in that day, who was the Lord? God. You know, even in the, the verse that's quoted here from, uh, from Joel, where it says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, in Joel, that's referring to God. So, so Peter is taking a title in Jewish thought, for God, and is saying Jesus is the Lord. But he's also the Christ. Who's the Christ? Well, that's the descendant of King David, the human descendant of King David who would become the king of Israel. So he's both God and the human king, descendant of David. He's the God-man. He's both Lord and Christ. It's a very high declaration of who Jesus is. And that's the moment where it's the aha moment, where the cat gets let out of the bag, where suddenly you realize, what? We didn't know. Who was that? What did I say? What have I been doing? Now, then the rest of the sermon is evidence to that point. So, so if the main point of this sermon is God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, everything from verses 22 to that point are are arguments for why, or proofs why Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Think of Peter at this point, he's kind of like a lawyer, and he's making a case, and he's bringing evidence forward to prove that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, all right? This is one reason. Here's another reason we know he's, he's Lord and Christ. Here's another reason that this Jesus is not who you thought he was, and here's another one, and he brings forward these pieces of evidence. So let's just walk through the sermon then and follow the logic and notice these evidences that uh, Peter brings to show that Jesus is Lord in Christ. Here's the first evidence. It's, it's a quick one, but it's in verses 22 and 23. It's, that, uh, it's the life and death of Jesus, his life and death. So verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus was a man accredited by God to you through miracles, wonders, and signs. Jesus was a miracle worker. Hey, you guys should have known. You saw his miracles. You should have known this was just no ordinary rabbi. I mean, he was opening the eyes of the blind and curing leprosy. He was doing amazing things. It's interesting that if you look at uh, ancient literature outside of the New Testament, but, but contemporaneous with the New Testament, 
that, that where you find references to Jesus, because Jesus isn't just in the Bible. He's, he appears in the ancient literature outside the New Testament as well. And, and you'll often find that one of the things they refer to is his miracles. So Josephus, who was an ancient Jewish historian, he talks about Jesus' wonders that he did. Even the rabbinic literature that comes right after the time of the New Testament where the rabbis would talk about Jesus, and of course they, they would denounce him as a false messiah, but they would always call him a magician or a sorcerer. Isn't that interesting? There was some awareness that he was doing things people couldn't explain. But they said, well, he's a, he's a, he's a wizard. <laughs> That's how, you know. Uh, he, he's, he's using the powers of darkness to do supernatural things. But he's a, he was a miracle worker. And so Peter's saying, you guys should have known that, that Jesus, Jesus was something special. That was one of the evidences. Um, but even his death, verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, by the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, it's important that Peter touch on that because if Peter's, the, okay, so he's a lawyer, kind of a lawyer mode here, and he's building a case to show that Jesus really is Lord in Christ. He's like, look at his miracles, even his death, because Peter has to do something with that because the death part of Jesus probably would make someone think, well, maybe he's not the Lord, because how did Jesus die? He was crucified. And in that culture, you only got crucified if you were a total dirtbag, if you were the scum of the earth and the worst of the worst. So Peter's got to tell these Jewish people that God, who is also the Messiah, died the death that only the cursed worst people get. So that's kind of a problem in his argument, at least from their perspective. But Peter handles it. He goes, no, 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 no. This was all part of God's plan. God had planned this. God had organized this. You know, you put him to death, and evil people did this, and you're responsible, but God planned it. And so here we have an amazing, you know, if I could just digress for a minute. Verse 23 is such an amazing little verse that expresses both that the free will and responsibility of human beings and the total sovereignty of God. You know, we, we struggle to put these together, don't we? We're like, well, is, is man free or is God in charge? And verse 23 says, absolutely correct. <laughs> yes. You know, you did this. You're responsible. You're not off the hook for what you did. Wicked men did this. These are all moral categories. You're responsible for this terrible thing you did. And God planned the whole thing. What? So, so in other words, God must be so great and awesome that he somehow is able to rule and guide everything in such a way that, that I'm still a responsible free agent, but he's making sure of the outcome. And you say, how is that possible? I don't know, but God just must be great if he can do that. I have no idea how God does that. But what's encouraging to me, and should be encouraging to us, is that this verse also shows us that, uh, that God can bring his good purposes even out of the most evil, dastardly things. That no matter how bad it is, even when people are acting their worst, God can rule and can have his purposes be accomplished. Because here we have the worst thing that ever went down on the face of the earth, the crucifixion of the Son of God. There's no worse crime that's ever been committed. And yet God brought the greatest good out of it, which is our salvation. And so as Christians, you know, we, we go, you become a Christian and you think, wow, I'm a Christian, that's awesome. I'm like, 
free from all the bad things in life now. Yay. No. We, we still go through things. We go through uh, diseases and trials and struggles. People still treat us poorly. As a Christian, you can still have your identity stolen, you know, online and have your, your name ruined. As a Christian, you can still be unjustly treated at work. People do all kinds of evil things in this world. People harm each other. They lie to each other. They, they, they assault each other. That's the world we live in. But we believe that God is so sovereign that he can even take the, the evil choices of people and use them for all of his purposes and all of his good that he has desired to accomplish. I was, uh, I don't know if any of you, an example of this, uh, this week, I don't know if you've ever heard about our youth pastor, Pete, what happened to him this week. He dislocated his foot. If you're on Facebook and you want to see pictures that'll make you, like, pass out, just look at Pete's pictures on Facebook. They just keep popping up the top of my thread. Every time I open up Facebook, there's Pete's foot, like, you know. <sighs> so, anyway, it, it was pretty, pretty rough. He was playing basketball and came down on it wrong. So, uh, so they tried to set it. They gave him some some uh, painkiller, and they tried to set it, and, and it didn't work. So, so they, they're going to have to put him out to set it. But to do that, they had to wait until all the medication like worked its way through his system. So he, I was talking to him, and he's telling me he had about a two-hour window where he was just in dislocated foot pain without painkillers that were working. Uh, and he's just laying there like, suffering. But this is what he told me. It's so cool. He said, as I laid there just dealing with this pain, he was thinking... You know, this is probably nothing compared to the pain that my Savior suffered. And he just began to meditate on the sufferings of Christ for his sins. And, and then the nurse came in, and she was like, oh, you know, we're really sorry this, that this thing didn't work out. We don't know how you're dealing with a lot of pain. You must have a high pain tolerance. And so Pete, typical Pete, says, well, actually, I've just been thinking about Jesus. And he starts talking about how Jesus suffered for our sins and the pain he endured and how he died on the cross for us. And he started sharing the gospel with this nurse. And she starts crying. And, and he's just telling her about the Lord. And she, she says, why do you go to church? I might come. Who knows? What, what if God, not allowed, planned for Pete's foot to go through that so that the gospel could come to a nurse. And maybe, maybe it'll be a couple other times before she understands that God loves her so much that he would even allow pain, that, that God would send pain as a way of opening our hearts to his great love, which sounds so strange, and yet this is how God saved us. But I digress. That's one evidence, the life and death of Jesus, the life and death of Jesus, is an evidence that he is special, that this is not just any other rabbi. But then here's the second evidence. Peter now brings forward exhibit B in his case of proving that Jesus really is Lord and Christ. And of course, it's the big piece. It's, it's the one that the case is really built on. It's the resurrection. This is the big piece of evidence. Look at verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. As one commentator said, uh, you know, the grave could no more hold Jesus in than a pregnant woman's body could hold the baby in. 
Jesus was going to come forth because he is the Lord. Death can't hold God. And then to prove Jesus' resurrection, we get this uh, quote from uh, Psalm 16. If you look at verse 25, so, so now Peter is he's quoting the Bible, the Old Testament. And there's this interesting quote, and so here's the psalm, where, where David is talking about how God takes care of him. King David's talking about how much God loves him and how God will even protect him from the grave. You know, verse 27, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will let your Holy One see decay. So, so David is like, God's taking care of me. Man, God's sparing my life. God saves my life. He protects me from the grave. He, he won't let me see decay. And, and Peter wants to point out that, you know, there's one sense in which that's true, that God saved David again and again. And yet there's another sense in which that's not literally true because David did eventually die. So, Peter says, verse 29, Brothers, I tell you with confidence that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. You guys can still go see David's tomb. But he was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. So there would be another descendant of King David who would be the king, the Messiah. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. And, and so, look, look, don't, guys, this whole resurrection of Jesus, the, the Bible told us this was going to happen. We just didn't quite know where to look. But here it is. And this would have been surprising to Jewish people, too, because Jewish people believed in the resurrection. If, if you had asked the average Jewish person in that day, your kind of regular, faithful Jew, do you believe that God will raise the dead? They would have said yes. When? Well, at the last day. But this would have been unique to think that God would have raised somebody before the last day in one person, Jesus. But here's the evidence from their own scriptures. And so verse 32, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. The resurrection of Jesus is, it's not just a part of the Christian teaching, it's the it's the foundation on which all of Christianity rests. You get rid of the resurrection, and you just you don't have Christianity. You don't have our faith. I mean, that, that's what we proclaim. I mean, there's so many religions in the world. There's so many holy books. There's so many holy places. There's so many different prophets and preachers and teachers and rabbis and pastors and imams and all these people all teaching and preaching. And you're like, how do you know which is true? You know, you know maybe, maybe, maybe they're all kind of true and you just got to have to pick the best parts out of it and, and sort of, you know, take what you want, you know, be, just filter, filter it all like a buffet, take a little scoop of this and a little scoop of that and, you know, whatever kind of works for you and makes, appeals to your spiritual appetite. How do we know which is true? Well, there's only one religion where we're saying that the founder is still alive today because he's risen. That's it. You take that away, and I'm looking for a different job, people. And I'm going to go out and, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. The hope we have is that Christ was raised. And that's what these apostles believed you know, you think about the, the resurrection, it's a remarkable thing that you would have Jewish apostles proclaiming Jesus was risen, which was not a part of their religious belief system. This was a new belief 
that one guy would be raised ahead of time. And that a group of them, not just one deluded guy who, you know, had problems, not just one deluded guy, but 12 of them all saying, we saw him, and all of them, except one, according to church history, dying violent deaths because they believed that he rose from the dead. You have to put that together and kind of do the math and be like, why did they do that? Why did they think that? Why would they proclaim something? that wasn't already pre-programmed for them to believe because of their upbringing, something so outlandish, something that their own people wouldn't have believed. He's risen. Jesus is risen. He is alive today. And because of that, he is Lord and Christ. But Peter has one more piece of evidence, so... Exhibit A, the life and death of Jesus. Exhibit B, the big one, the resurrection of Jesus, that we serve a risen Lord. And then exhibit C is the exaltation and enthronement of Jesus. That after Jesus rose, as we saw in the beginning of Acts, he he rose to the Father's right hand, he ascended to heaven, and that's where Jesus is today. Look at verse, um, where are we at here? Look at verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. You know, Jesus is alive today, and he's in a certain place. He's at the right hand of God. Now, now what does it mean to be at the right hand of someone? Well, it means that, at least in biblical imagery, that that was the place of authority and privilege and power. If you sat at someone's right hand, you shared in all of the glory and dignity and rights and prerogatives of that person. So it's a way of saying that Jesus is on the divine throne, that he's reigning with God, which, of course, means he's God, because only God can be God and reign on God's throne. That's how it works. So this remarkable thing. And then he, he says, look, he's poured out the Holy Spirit. You know, another reason we know Jesus is raised and is risen is because the Holy Spirit is here with us. It's like Jesus rose from the dead, and then he went and sat on his throne, and then as, as a conquering or victorious king, he started doling out presents to his citizens. You know, it's, it's kind of like in his victory, he's, he's giving gifts to all of his people, and he gives the Holy Spirit to us so that... I, this, this is such a cool thought. Whenever you and I are experiencing the Holy Spirit in our lives, whenever the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin, whenever the Holy Spirit is giving us aha moments from the Bible, whenever I'm in church and I come in like, Ugh, you know, and, and then 10 minutes later the Holy Spirit is lifting my heart in worship and I'm beginning to see the glory of Christ and I'm lifted in praise to God, Whenever the Holy Spirit is helping me defeat sin in my life and I'm growing and I see and I feel the Spirit's work, whenever that's happening, don't you see that is the risen Jesus actively working in your life in 2014 through His Holy Spirit. The presence of the Spirit and all of our experience of it is proof that He is the risen Lord who's reigning through his Holy Spirit in our lives. And then he gives a quote from the Bible to uh, to, uh, further bolster this third evidence, this third thing that Jesus is risen and reigning. Look at verse 34. This is an important quote. For David did not ascend to heaven. Again, we're back to King David. David didn't rise from the dead. David didn't ascend to heaven. Yet what did David say? 
He said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a very important verse. This verse is from Psalm, do you know the Psalm? Psalm 110, you should know this. Put this in your little memory thing. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. It's everywhere. And it's one of the primary texts where they saw Jesus in the Old Testament. And and it pops up all over the New Testament as as an evidence of Jesus. Okay, so check it out. This is kind of a riddle. Not like last week. It's a different different riddle. Okay, verse 35 is a riddle. There's three people in this verse. Who are the three people? There's David who's speaking. So there's the guy who's talking. Who's the second person in the, the second person? The Lord. Then who's the third person? My Lord. So David says, the Lord, who's the Lord? That's God. David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So if you're an Old Testament saint and you're reading this verse, you've got to kind of scratch your head a little bit and be like, okay, I know who David is and I know who the Lord is. But who's my Lord? Who's, who's the Lord talking to that David would call my Lord? And why would David call anyone besides God my Lord? It's a really strange little verse. It's kind of like a puzzle. I, I felt like I'm in The Hobbit, and here's, you know, Bilbo and, and Gollum trading riddles. Like, what does that riddle mean? You know, what, what is this? And it's not until you get to Christ that the puzzle piece falls into place. And suddenly, there it is. Oh, the Lord is speaking to David's Lord, who is Jesus, who is a descendant of David, a human, but who is also the Lord. Sit at my right hand. And so this is where you get this idea that Jesus is not just a human king, a descendant of David, but he's also very God of God. Here in the Old Testament, in Psalm 110, is a little glimpse into the Trinity, of one God, not three gods, one God, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all loving together and working together and serving one another so that the Lord would say to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And, and so here's Peter saying, guys, that's Jesus. That's who it is. And he's there until he makes his enemies a footstool for your feet. That's where Jesus is. Jesus is reigning today over all the world And someday he's returning in all evil and all his enemies will be put under his feet. And so there's the evidence, the life and death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus proved through Old Testament passages, proved through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So having laid out the evidence, it's like Peter is the lawyer now making his closing argument. Here's his final, his final thing he says. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. It's an awesome moment. I, you know, I wish I had an alarm clock that when it went off in the morning when I get up, that instead of playing music or making that buzzing noise, it, it, it was just a voice shouting at me, 
God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. So get up, Jeremy, and live like it. Stop freaking out about everything, Jeremy. God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. Jeremy, you're going to be tempted today. But remember, God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. Be in awe of him. Your heart's going to be tempted today, Jeremy, to be, to be wooed and by, by all kinds of worldly things and be attracted to them and drawn to them and to be stra- drawn away from him. But remember, he's made Jesus Lord in Christ. Lift up your eyes. See Jesus. You know, I'm going to be tempted today to be afraid or to be angry or to be selfish or to think that I'm Lord. I know how that turns out. I keep believing it. It keeps being a disaster, and I keep coming back to it. What is wrong with me? No, no. He is Lord in Christ. We need this truth proclaimed every day. All the world needs this proclaimed. Oh, they need to hear this at the UN. They need to hear this in Congress. They need to hear this in all the parliaments and all the nations of the world, that Jesus is Lord in Christ. Because he alone is risen, and he alone is reigning, because he alone is God, not just a religious leader. He is God. And then that's when it happens. That's when the cat gets let out of the bag. That's when the aha, whoops, that was the pastor, whoops, that was the boss moment happens for them. Is when Peter makes the whole case, and he goes, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's Lord in Christ, whom you crucified. And not surprisingly, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were what? Cut. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We are in big trouble. We have totally misunderstood who God is. We've totally misread the situation. And I think that as we read these verses, we should be cut to the heart as well on some level because we have also failed to apprehend and respond rightly to who Jesus is. Not that we were there literally nailing nails into Jesus onto the cross, but, you know, I, I have to recognize that I have the kind of heart and the kind of hands that would probably, if I was there, not have had a problem with it either. I'm that kind of person too. If Peter were to stand here today, he might not say to us, Jesus, whom you crucified, is Lord in Christ. But you know, he might say some other things. He might say, this Jesus, whose name you use as a swear quite regularly, is both Lord in Christ. This Jesus, whom you haven't really thought about very much in the last month, he's both Lord in Christ. This Jesus whom, whom you ignore, this Jesus who you don't worship, you don't care about, this Jesus whom, whom you disregard because you already have the higher power of your choosing, because you already have the spirituality of your own construction, that Jesus who you disregard because you think you're all set, he's Lord in Christ. This Jesus whom I don't obey, I don't worship, I don't fear, I rarely pray to, even as a Christian, he's Lord in Christ. 
that should cut us to the heart. Because even as a Christian, I, I find that my, my response to Jesus is a sad response compared to who he is. And I'm cut to the heart, and we say, what must we do? Fortunately, Peter tells them what to do. He tells them two things to do, and then he gives them two promises that will come as a result of doing those things. So what what do they have to do? Verse 38, Peter says, repent, and then be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So you have to repent. Repent is an action of the heart. What does it mean to repent? That's kind of a churchy word. Repent, what does that mean? Repent, Repent means to change your direction. Or to put it another way, repent is to say, I'm wrong. We're not very good at saying that, are we? I'm wrong. I was totally wrong. I don't like anyone like saying that, pretending someone else is saying it. It's just, oh, I hate being wrong. We all like to think we're right. I'm wrong. What I've been thinking about God, my ideology, my spirituality that I think is so fine is actually wrong. The, the, the way I've been living my life and the things I've been doing that I've convinced myself are okay, I'm wrong and God is right. The, the way I've thought about Jesus is wrong and God is right. It's, it's a change of the heart of repentance and to own that and to say God is right and I am a sinful person. I haven't thought right. I haven't believed right. And then, and then we are baptized. Now, baptism, of course, doesn't save us. You know, if you were right in this moment in this room for the first time to believe in Jesus and to repent of your sins and then you were to walk out of here and drop dead you would belong to the Lord. But people, typically that doesn't happen. And so the way we show our faith and the way we show that we've repented is that we're then baptized. So baptism is a symbol of repentance and faith. And, and so he said, you've got to be baptized. But here's the key, in the name of Jesus, because that's the name in whom we call and are saved. And so repent and believe show that belief through baptism. And, and even as Christians, we have to keep coming back to repentance. Repentance should be a daily habit for us as Christians as we reflect back on our day and our week and we see the ways we've strayed from the Lord and we keep coming back. And what does God promise for those who repent and believe? Well, two things. Verse 38, forgiveness of your sins. God will forgive you. Forgive it. God can forgive anything through Jesus because Jesus died for sinners. God can forgive all the times I have used the Lord's name in vain or cursed or swore. All the the harsh words I've said to people. God can forgive me for the ways I've hurt people. He can forgive me for broken relationships. He can forgive things I've done to hurt myself, self-destructive things. God can forgive me for addictions. God can forgive me for divorce. God can forgive abortion. God can forgive anything but we have to repent and believe. And God washes us clean. He forgives. And not only does he forgive, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That's the other one. Wow, we receive the Holy Spirit? So not just, hey, you're clean now, don't mess up again. 
but I'm going to go inside you and you're going to be in me and I'm going to be in you and the Spirit is going to help transform your life. It's not like the cop who pulls you over and says, well, I caught you speeding, but this time I'm going to let you go. But don't do it again. It's the cop who's like, you know, I'm going to get in the car and ride around with you and help you and make sure you don't get busted and I'm going to teach you how to drive the right way. Oh, wow. Wow, that'd be, you know, kind of freaky but kind of cool. <laughs> the Spirit is in us. And he's, he's vouching for us, and he's with us. And he's helping us to live a holy life. So it's not just forgiving grace. God gives transforming grace and changing grace and powerful grace in our hearts. And all this from the Savior who was crucified for our sins. And Peter says, it's for you, it's for your children, all whom God will call. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I wish I had more time. I would love to plead with you more. We do need to be saved from this corrupt generation. But then I love verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Oh, that's all. (laughs) That's amazing. Because before that, the church was only about 100 folks, 120 it says. And then they went from 120, sermon, 3,000. So how was was church this weekend? That's pretty good. We we had a little growth spurt. We grew 3,000%. Typical day in Pentecost. Wow, God is pouring out his spirit. God is still doing this. You know, here's actually a fourth evidence that Jesus is Lord. The fourth evidence is the church. The fact that the church was born. The fact that the church is still growing Despite its flaws and failures, people are still coming to Jesus. The the existence of a people of God is a fourth evidence of Christ's lordship and reign and rule in this world. And this kind of thing is still happening today. I'll tell you a story. Uh, I heard it from one of our elders this week. Um, It's kind of one of those firsthand account things. Um, It's kind of sensitive, too, so I'll I'll try to obscure some of the details. But... uh, there's, uh, it's a report about a church that's just sprung up in a country where uh, ISIS is currently threatening and operating. So in this country where ISIS is, this church has, has recently come into existence. And it's a church about, right now it's about our size. People are coming to faith, and a lot of them are, are Muslims who are coming to faith in Jesus and um, they recently baptized a bunch of people. And the way we, we, we came to this story is that there was a pastor from another country who went and spoke there and saw this church. And as he was preaching, you know, people were putting their faith in Jesus, like, you know, in droves in this right there. This kind of Pentecost sort of thing. And, uh, and, and part of what they were saying is that, that, that the ISIS thing has had an effect on some Muslims, causing them to wonder, is this really what our faith is about? sort of, you know, it's ringing hollow. Like, is this, is this where the Quran takes us? Is this where our faith takes us? And they're starting to doubt and question. What is this that we really believe? And, and then you have Christians who are in this crazy place and they're like facing death. And they kind of got to that point where they're like, you know what, we really don't care anymore. We're just going to tell people about Jesus because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And they're just kind of like, well, let's just talk about Christ. So they're fearlessly, boldly proclaiming their faith. And there's people who are, you know, doubting and questioning. God is using ISIS for his 
purposes. Even the evil that men do, God is working and judoing it and flipping it to save whom he will save. That's what God does. And it's still happening today, which is so encouraging because it makes me think, well, maybe there's even chance for New England that God would add to the numbers, not, not just of our church. This isn't about getting people in our church. This is about people coming to Christ, that God would add to the numbers of those being saved. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are Lord in Christ. We worship you. We acknowledge you today as Lord in Christ. We repent of our unbelief and our fear and our sin and all the ways we've lived as if you weren't Lord in Christ. Oh, Lord, change our hearts. Change our our attitudes. Change our minds, Lord. God, I pray, fill this church with the Holy Spirit. Fill us with a holy boldness and a, a holy desire, Lord, to be fearless evangelists for you. God, I pray that many would be added. I pray, Lord, you'd open up doors for us to tell the gospel to others. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.